0: Thank you Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we scour our vinyl collections to bring you unknown songs by great artists and great songs by unknown artists. I'm Joe. I'm Ryan. And today we have a privately
1: pressed podcast for you by a couple of real people just doing the best they can with what they got. Uh, And we're going to talk about private press records for this episode and the next episode. But before Joe uh, gives us all the information on that, we're going to do, as always, a little bit of trivia.
0: This episode's trivia, non-audio trivia, is called Carburetor Dungeness Crab. Okay. What I'm, I'm going to read you, and I'm only going to do five of these. These are long. I'm going to read you five Lester Banks quotes about a specific band, and I want you to tell me what band he's talking oh about. Oh my gosh, okay. Question one. This band's sound seems to be a mix of several of the most currently popular approaches, notably Crosby, Stills, and Nash, vocally and Vanilla Fudge, instrumentally. Unlike The Fudge, they have a sense of style, taste, and subtlety, and the record is a pleasurable one, if a bit familiar sounding. Their version of The birds' ICU is especially nice, although none of their own compositions are very memorable. This is the kind of album that sometimes insinuates itself into your routine with a totally unexpected thrust of musical power. Gosh, it's a band I know? Yeah. I don't know if it's a band you like. I don't like them. Okay. I can give you I can Give me a hint. Most of the members of this band are the backing band for one of our favorite musicians' albums. It's not the band, is it? Nope. Um, it is Yes. I don't think I would have ever got that, but that's a pretty good clue. This is less trivia than just kind of a fun way to read Lester Banks' reviews. Fun way at my expense. Not really. I mean, <laughs> most of life is at your expense. <laughs> this is true. Okay, here we go. Way back in 1972, they recorded an album up in New England that can stand, I think, easily with Beatle 65, Life with the Lions, Blonde on Blonde, and Teenage Jesus and the Jerks Is one of the landmarks of rock and roll history. Don't make no difference, they embrace all because they are true one-world humanists with an eye to our social future whose only hope is a redefined communism based on the open-hearted sharing of whatever you got with all sentient beings. There in my religion is compassion, true Christianity, with no guilt factors and no vested interest. Perhaps a barter economy, but certainly the elimination of capitalism, rape, and special interest group hatred.
1: They're so great. The reviews are so great. <laughs> Recor- recorded. In, there's nothing like, at all. There's like no clues except recorded in New England in 1965.
0: Yeah, I took out the clues. <laughs> 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 it's re- It was recorded by Sisters. Heart? The Shags. Oh, gosh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah that's, okay. A, that's,
1: that's a good one for today.
0: Exactly. Number three. He is interested, obsessed, with how much musical or verbal information he can compress into a small space, and almost conversely, how far he can spread one note, word, sound, or picture to capture one moment, be it a caress or a twitch he repeats certain phrases to extremes that from anybody else would seem ridiculous because he's waiting for a vision to unfold, trying as unobtrusively as possible to nudge it along. Sometimes he gives it to you through silence by choking off the song in mid-flight. It's too late to stop now. And that last part's in quotes. It's an album that he absolutely loves He wrote this 10 years after it came out The person who wrote, who made this album Did the entire album when I think he was 21 years old Van Morrison? Yep,
1: Astral Weeks Van Oh, alright, wow That was a lucky guess I, I think I got that one from the repeated uh, lines That would make other people sound ridiculous But
0: he could pull it off Because I think that about Van yep. Morrison all the time Number four by the second album, it became apparent to quick listeners that this band were limited, that the lead singer's vision, if we ever took it seriously in the first place, was usually morbid in the most obvious possible way, and thus cheap, and that the whole nightmare could translate into the parody it ultimately became so easily.
1: The Doors?
0: It is The Doors. Yes. Very good. I didn't. There's a whole other paragraph, and I just, you know, I don't need to do that. That's enough. Number five. So I'm gonna go not so very far at all out on a limb and say that he is the most important musician to rise in the 60s, far more significant and far-reaching than the Beatles, who only made pretty collages with material from the public domain, and when you get right down to it, as important, as I said, for all music as Ornette Coleman was for jazz 10 years ago and Charlie Parker 15 years before that, as important as Lead Belly was for the blues,
1: I want to say Lou Reed, but I'm going to go with Captain Beefheart.
0: It is exactly yes. right, is Captain Beefheart. I know he loved Captain Beefheart. Work. Yeah, there were a bunch of good Captain Beefheart ones, and there was a really good Eagles one. But I hate them so much, I don't even want. Yeah, to we don't want to give them, them. them the, any
1: time on our show.
0: No way, and they'll sue us.
1: <laughs> All right, that was a fantastic quiz. A lot of fun. We need to do that again. Let's see. It's time for my quiz, and I have a audio quiz. Right down the middle. Tell me the artist and the song, and there is a theme holding these five songs together. Are you ready? Yes. All right. First song.
2: The telephone is ringing. You got me on
1: the run. Second song.
3: You see your mom this weekend. Would you be sure and tell her? Satan.
4: Satan. Satan. Satan.
1: Third song,
2: slip inside the eye of your mind. Don't you know you might find a better place to play?
1: Fourth song, And fifth and last
2: song.
1: Alright, we will come back to that at the end of the show. Uh like I said, you your job is to name the artist and the song, and there is a theme that holds them all together. Uh, I might give you a clue about that theme later. It's it's a tougher theme than it is any individual song, I think. But now it is time for some turntable talk.
4: Everybody is talking at me. I don't hear a word to say. Only the echoes of my mind
0: For my turntable talk, I did research on what are known as private press records. I just thought, you know, this will be nice. This will be fun to learn about. I know a few things about them already. I did not. I had no idea what a black hole this would become. Private press records, often called vanity records, uh, they've been around for a long time. But what we are going to, or what I am going to focus on today are specifically records made mostly in the 70s. Um, some late 60s, some early 80s, but, but for the most part right around there. The reason that that's kind of the prime time for these records is because after the early 80s, people could much more easily record their music and get them spread out to wider audiences very quickly. In fact, today it's ridiculously simple. However, back in the 70s, most for the most part, I'll probably just refer to the 70s even though I'm saying 60s and 80s too. Back then it was much harder. These records were made by individuals, generally, or bands. They did them for a few different reasons. They did them often to be sold at shows they were playing, Uh, So if they were playing concerts, playing small concerts at a local bar, or um, a lot of them are kind of loungy ones that were where people were working at supper clubs, which are fantastic, (laughs) or they were sometimes made to give to friends and family. Sometimes they were even made specifically to further their career or to kind of kickstart a career that had never gone anywhere. So they were made uh, more as like demos to be sent to DJs and record labels just to just in the hope that they catch the right person at the right time, which very few of them ever did. These were all made in incredibly small batches. I can't think of very many that would ever be over 100. They would go into something that's like a studio. It's a a small record plant or a record pressing plant. It's very, very small. And these were generally sort of franchises. Like there would be a big pressing company in, I think the big one was in California, and they would franchise out these tiny little pressing Places where people could record their, record their cute little albums. That's how this all kind of went about. So they put a lot into this. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of these records around. Just to kind of give you an idea of one that most people have heard of, especially if they listen to the first part of the show, is The Shags. Yes, The Shags were a band that... There's three sisters who had no interest in being a band. They didn't know how to play their instruments. Their lyrics were very childlike, uh, but their dad wanted them to be famous. (laughs) So he he took them in, and he paid for a record to be made. And it has gotten a lot of acclaim. It's been repressed or reissued several times. It's an album that you could really hate it, and you could always hate it. Or... You could love it immediately. Most people did not. One of the other options you have, and this is kind of this kind of goes in line with a lot of more difficult music. You could listen to it like 20 times and hate it all 20 of those times, and then put it on for the 21st and love it. If everything will just click, it's a, very similar to like a Captain Beefheart. There's something in there when you listen to it that kind of draws you in, and even though you it seems like it's really really bad, there's just something in there that you know will eventually click. And the more deliberate you are as a listener and the more times you give it a shot, the better it will end up sounding and the actually probably the more meaning it will have for you. That's basically the shags. Uh, yeah. There's no reason to go into that too much.
1: Well, and I know like, at least in some of what I've been reading, and, and I think since you proposed this idea, you and me both kind of got obsessed with it. I think it's fair to say. But I know a yeah. lot of the, they talk about, and I know you're going to talk about this, is they call it like real people music. Like these aren't famous yep. celebrities, professional musicians who are classically trained. They're just you know, just average Joe-type people making albums.
0: That's exactly right. So it's people and bands making albums, and it's basically the the best that this country could possibly offer. It's a nice kind of microcosm yeah. of, of everything that's good about this country. And it's that people, regardless of, regardless of their skill set, their talent, they have sincerity, they want to be doing something like this. They really are... Invested in this, so it's very easily. It's very easy to ridicule a lot of these albums, mock them. Some of them are really terrible. But when you sit down and you think about all that each person went into putting, making this happen, the only thing you can do is appreciate each one of these in some way, even if they are ridiculous. There's something great about every single one of them. They're all unique, and that that, that real people-music term. It's a, a term by a guy named Paul Major, as you know. Mm-hmm. As I was doing research, I was researching on the internet. I have a bunch of books now. Um, I've just really become obsessed. So, Everywhere you go, Paul Major is kind of the the guy everybody points to. He's sort of the expert uh, on private press records and just bizarre records in general. He created that term, the real people <clears> music <throat> term. It's the perfect word to describe this. So Paul Major, who is generally considered to be the person who brought these private press records into the world of collectors. There are people, if anybody ever does listen to this show... There are people who will correct me on that. Other people were collecting these records. What he did, and other people were putting out catalogs, selling these records. They weren't incredibly collectible. He's the one who made them more collectible, and he made them more well-known. He kind of pushed them out into into people who would otherwise not have a chance to hear it. So similar to what John Peel did with his reach with the radio, Paul Major did with what he had uh, he had listed as catalogs.
1: And his reviews are real important too. Like he wouldn't just list mm-hmm.
0: them, here's this record, he would really bring them to life with his reviews. Exactly. He would describe the album so perfectly that they would buy the album based on that, and that's what it would sound like. There's no other way at the time that they would be able to listen to any of it first. This was happening kind of in the late 70s, early 80s, when he started this catalog called Feel the Music, and he would put ads for that catalog in Goldmine, and people would buy the catalog, have it sent to them, or just have the catalog sent. I think that was free. But yeah, it was those reviews that he's really known for. He's very clever, articulate, really smart, and incredibly passionate. Even the reviews of the Bad albums make them sound like, like what we were talking about, like their albums to be appreciated nonetheless. He's incredibly enthusiastic. Nobody anywhere that I went on any website ever said a bad thing about him. Everybody said he's incredibly generous. He's one of the nicest people ever. He's—it's so easy to get him talking about music. All he wants to do are two things: he wants to introduce you to new songs, and, and he wants you to introduce him to some. And he will just do whatever it takes. You'll be people were invited over to his house all the time just to stay up all night, smoke pot listen to songs they'd never heard before he would even keep people on the phone for from across the world just keep them on phone on the phone all night long there's one guy who after this was in the early 80s in i think it was in sweden who would call paul major once in a while to order albums and they were talking for a long time on the phone just playing songs back and forth and then the guy says he fell asleep and a few hours later he woke up he could still hear music on the other end like (laughs) (laughs) And this was not, I mean, this, these are expensive calls.
1: <laughs> I've read some some interviews with him, and I listened to a couple interviews. And uh, the thing about him, it, he, he does sound super nice, but he's like he has that kind of infectious personality where he really gets you excited about it. And he can do that just in talking about a band or a song. Whenever they ask, what are some of your favorites, he always says different stuff it's like whatever he was his favorite at the time now he there's some he probably comes back to or, you know, more important but like i've probably read four or five different interviews and each time he'll mention two or three different albums that he really liked or really got him going or something like that and i, I think that's kind yeah. of fun there's not just a consistency about it but he seems super nice and the enthusiasm it's just you know it catches on
0: and we're i'm gonna post a bunch of his reviews on the on the website so that you guys can read some of them they're they're just amazing. That's one of the reasons I wanted to do a Lester Banks-type trivia at the beginning is because this guy's as good. It's They're much shorter, they're more encapsulated, but they're really good, and he really changed the way people saw these albums. He grew up in Louisville, he was born in, like, 54. He moved to New York City in 1978, started working at this record store. Throughout this entire time, even from when he was a kid, he was into collecting records he just loved it he loved music It was always always basically what he cared about and he was in a band all this time as well or several bands kind of he liked like really great hard rock uh kind of stuff he also liked velvet underground 13 floor elevators that kind of thing too But he would always be on the lookout for albums that kind of caught his eye that he didn't know anything about. I think one place I read said that uh, where he said that he looked for albums that looked like what it felt like to be taking acid. (laughs) And those were the albums that he wanted the most. So he was really into acid rock and psych. That's all he was really focusing on until one day he was at his apartment in Hoboken with his roommates. And there was a box of records that were delivered. They opened it up, and there were three or four records in there by this guy named Kenneth Higney. This album, the album that he sent them, is called Attic Demonstration. And it's basically a demo that this guy was trying to get out and become famous with. That was the album that really started everything and kind of blew up Paul Major's whole world as far as what he was doing. That showed him an entire new world of what he then termed Real People Music because that's what that was. There's more out there than Acid Rock and Psych, although that stuff is great. He's going to always collect that. He loves it. But now he's got all these other things. These loner, what were they, loner folk albums or whatever whatever terms people called them. But he called them real people music. These are, like we were talking about earlier, these are people who invested so much of themselves and put everything they had into these albums, good or bad. You could really hear everything that's going on with them. And that Kevin Hickney one is the first one that got him going. And we'll, one of my songs today is going to be a song from that album.
1: I think one of the things you kind of touched on that he he mentioned in one of his interviews is, you know, they'd pay a thousand two thousand dollars in the 70s to have these albums cut i mean it was not cheap i mean it's not like now where you can get on garage band or whatever it was the equivalent of ten thousand dollars you know something somewhere around that and so like these are not just kind of like one-offs wouldn't it be fun to put down? people really cared about them they really wanted so much for them and so there's (laughs) i think when you listen to them there's a lot of they may not have the skills, but they certainly have passion. And sometimes, passion with no skills, you know, like this podcast, you know, it, it leads <laughs> to some crazy things. But I think that that was very interesting. Like that, these were not cheap to cut these records. They weren't cheap at all. Is there any big albums that Paul Major's kind of credited for bringing into the to light or bringing into more popularity with the collectors?
0: Not specific albums, I mean people credit him for being like the the first person that brought some albums to some people's attention. Gotcha. a lot of for for a lot of it, people kn- the real series collectors already knew about it, but what his thing was is that he was able to reach a wider audience because people loved his catalog, they loved the way he wrote, they loved him. Um, So he was able to reach more people in a time when that was really hard. He had people all over the country and world that were kind of finding records for him. Like he had this guy in Austin, Texas that he referred to in his catalog as this man down south who would (laughs) go find records that were weird and he would play them over the phone for Paul Major and Paul would say, yeah, go ahead and send those to me or, you know, and he'd buy them off of them. So he was getting records from all over the world, not just in New York or wherever he was at the time. Yeah, that's awesome. So for the research I did, I used obviously Google a lot, but then I also had three books as sources of most of the information, and those books are The Acid Archives, Enjoy the Experience and Feel the Music. The Acid Archives, everybody should go out and buy. All of these three are great, but they're expensive. So I would recommend that if you only need to buy one, you buy the The Acid Archives. What that one does is it um it lists about 5000 albums In alphabetical order 5,000 bands in alphabetical order it talks about the bands the album it lets you know whether it's been reissued and whether that reissue is worth having is it from the masters is it uh is it crap that kind of stuff so it goes through all of that it also includes essays at the end where these experts on specific fields like take some time at the end and write little essays about exotica or soul and funk or lounge or new age or southern rock they've got a few of these essays throughout it's it's really amazing this is the only book of the three that i consider to be absolutely required required reading not just for people who are interested in private press but serious record collectors there's just so much information and some of these records are as good as anything you've ever heard like if i played for you and maybe some of you have heard this the bob trimble album you would think or the ca quintet or probably 50 other ones You would have no idea that this was pressed by some dude who walked into a record press plant with his, you know, with his pals and, and recorded this with no real producer, no engineer. They, some of them sound amazing. The really good songwriting, really good sound, really well played. There are a ton of those. The other books I got, the, the next one was called, is called Enjoy the Experience. This one is awesome too. I don't think it's quite as good as far as what I'm looking for. It has hundreds and hundreds of great pictures of the record albums, really big pictures, which is fantastic. Most of them, however, kind of goofy so the focus of this book though they they clearly loved and appreciate all the albums that are in here is mostly kind of on the novelty aspect of it hmm. like even though they talk a lot about how great some of the albums are and some of the artists are and they go through they have a list at the end of their favorites and those favorites are all really good albums there they seem to focus in the book they spent a little bit too much i think on the novelty which is hard to avoid so they also have really great essays in that one which is cool and they have a bunch of reviews by. Paul Major, so you can read some of those. That one comes with a double LP. That's one of the ways you can buy it, the book and the LP. And then the third book is called Feel the Music, and this is a book just about Paul Major and it's great. This would be the second of the three books I would recommend getting. If you can only get two, get this one, and then get Enjoy the Experience when you have an Amazon gift card or something. Uh, the Field of Music one with Paul Major, there's also an LP that comes with that one, and it's it's really good. It's not novelty at all, though. I mean, some of the songs might be considered that. They're not novelty songs. These are ridiculously good songs, mm-hmm. and he just kind of pulls some of his favorites and puts them on the, on the record, and then the book is essays by all these collectors of records and kind of they talk about how they got started how they met Paul major, what Paul major meant to them and that sounds kind of kind of sappy and dumb but it's really they're really well done. They talk a lot about albums. And then there's maybe 50 pages where you can see an album cover and the name of the album and the artist. And Paul Major is now writing about that album, even if it's something he hasn't heard in 30 years. He's kind of trying to remember what the album sounds like, and they're really good. The Dr. Hooker one, song, you uh, an album you played a song from yeah. quite a while back. The album came out in 72. He probably reviewed it in, you know, 78 to 80, or 82, somewhere in there. But then, now he's writing, This one is both psychedelic and a real people record at the same time. A friend who visited him in the 80s told me he only had cornflakes and vodka in his refrigerator. Looks like Jesus, sounds like LSD. He has a little bit of lounge sleaze thing going on in his voice, which messes good with the messianic vibes. That's perfect. That's exactly what it sounds like to me. So, And that was written, he probably hasn't heard that album in 20 years. Wow, that's great. (laughs) But he's got a ton of those. Do all three of the books have uh, pictures of the album covers? Acid Archives has, because they have so much in there, it's more of a reference book for finding information about. Uh, So they have small pictures of some of the album covers, not all of them at all. Enjoy the Experience has large, like full page pictures of album covers, and they're just beautiful. And I don't think that the album covers they have in there are really ever in, I don't recognize any of those from the acid archives ones yeah. so they do kind of mix it up
1: I think the covers play an important aspect particularly in the seeking of the albums like you were saying with Paul Major looks looking for something like if you're going out and looking and like you said these, these records are still out there a lot of these had mm-hmm. such small presses that they gave 25 away to friends and family and who knows where they end up it's it's you know and so that's kind of the fun yep. thing about still going out there and like don't you want to go find the next great private press record I mean yeah. it's in some Goodwill shop or something, you know.
0: Yeah, they could have just been thrown in a dumpster or a lot of the times they're just sitting in somebody's attic or basement. And what a lot of these people who did, including Paul Major, is they would find ways to contact the artist and talk to them and see if they had any records left.
1: Wow. I know we're talking a lot about these records and you probably, if you're listening to this podcast, are like, well, are we going to hear some? We're going to play you a ton of these songs here or at least clips of them. And so uh, we're going to break it up where gonna play some full length at the end but right now i'm gonna go ahead and play five clips of some of my favorite ones i've i've been listening to lately so i'm gonna go ahead and i'll talk about them afterwards but it's five you know 15 to 30 second clips of uh some private press songs that i think you should hear so here we go
4: i see you stepping high with your tight blue jeans on strutting like a button for some
1: Just to kind of go through these um, <laughs> real quick. Uh, the first song was a band called Lavender Country, and the song was called I Can't Shake the Stranger Out of You. That was one of the first openly gay country singers, the the man singing, and it was put out by like a uh, kind of a gay civil rights group in Seattle, so that's a really great record. The next one I played that was kind of the real kind of hippie ish vibe. Was called Can Am Des Plague, which was a multicultural art commune type thing. And the name of that song was Cauldron of Regeneration, which is a great song title for that sort of music. The next record after that was Dark Live for Today. Was the name of the song. And that was a Paul Major recommendation as one of the first ones he found that made a lot of money off of. It was you know kind of one of those uh, albums from the seventies. Next one after that was Gandalf the Grey, and the name of the song is The Gray Wizard I Am, and some dude basically dressed up like Gandalf, and he had a he had a Hobbit habit, and he wrote a record that started off about Tolkien and and uh, <laughs> Middle Earth, and then just kind of veered off into kind of a normal folk record. Uh, but it's really cool, worth checking out. And the last song was Junior and the Solettes. The name of the song was Mama Love Tequila, and that was a uh, guy with his kids and they uh yeah they cut that sort of record kind of like a urban shags
0: that record's awesome by the way and it's by i think the lead singer is 11 years old and his sisters are even younger, and that's the band, really. It's great.
1: Yeah, so, uh, like I said, that's just a sampling, and Joe's going to give you more. And we kind of had to argue about, not argue, but discuss like which ones we <laughs> wanted to play in R5, or uh, we're going to get more thematic next week or next show, I should say. I think we're going to talk uh, about another aspect of private press records. When Joe told me these existed, I flipped out. I want to know all about them. But he told me I had to wait for this. So here we go.
0: What we're going to talk about now is tax scam record labels. This was something that happened starting in around 76. And there's a little there's a little difference of opinion as to when it ended, which I don't quite understand why. The primary expert on these types of records or the, these types of record labels say that they ended in 78. But there are some of these records that go on until 84. And in 84, it was illegal to do these anymore. And I'll get, I'll get into that in a second. Here's what a tax scam record label is. A real record label would create a phony record label. They would get investors to invest in an album. They would invest, you know, let's say they invested $20,000 into an album. They would have that album appraised at, you know, (laughs) $100,000. And they they would then say, we're going to press 1,500 of these. And we're going to try to sell them. We're going to send them off to radio stations where this is going to make us a lot of money. However, they only ever pressed maybe 100, if that, sometimes 5 or 10. Uh, They (laughs) never did any marketing. And only about 1% ever made it to a record store. And the reason this worked and this was a tax scam is that they could then say the next year that this was a failure, didn't work, and the investors would get a tax break based on the appraised value, which was this ridiculously huge amount, (laughs) so they would get money back a lot more than they put in. Instead of even bothering to pay for people to record albums, they wanted to get like a hundred a year out at least so that they could make a lot of money. The major record label that's kind of making these little record labels, they would then go into their archives and pull out records that were shelved for whatever reason or they would find demos. They, sometimes they even used like real artists. Either way, whatever they did, it was always illegal. <laughs> they would put these records out and they would change the artist's name They would change the songwriting credits for the most part. They would never mention the real artist. They would change the cover. The copyright would be listed as one of the investors or some alias of one of the investors. It's really hard to track track these things down. And a lot of them allegedly are related to them off uh, so this was mostly happening it sounds like in new york and florida like a lot of these artists didn't even know that these records were ever even pressed they were never even meant for release like there's one guy who put an album together in the 70s late 70s he went on to be in a, a band that made another album but that the album he made as a, as a solo It was just kind of... Nobody ever did anything with it. He went into the studio and he cut a few songs. And he also gave them some demos he had recorded. Then he moved along. And he was playing in bands for a while. He finally quit playing music. And he ended up, like, working in movies somehow. Like, as a writer or something. But one of his best friends was in a record store in L.A. And saw this record and thought the cover looked really cool. So she took it home and she played it. And she was like, holy shit. This sounds like my friend Rich. So she called Rich (laughs) and played the song for him over the phone. And he said that's me. How, was, <laughs> how did that happen? And he went over and looked at the record. His name wasn't anywhere on it, but these were his demos mixed with those studio recording. Kind of a just a hodgepodge of singer-songwriter stuff, full band stuff just all over the place. But it was him, and he wasn't credited with any of it. So he tried to sue, and the lawyer said, there was no money made off of these. They really didn't do enough harm that you'll be able to do that. It's not worth it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Like there were some people who were part of like the record, the main record labels, studio musicians who would make some albums that are fake names. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, artists had no idea this was ever even happening. Some of them have been talked to decades later and they'll say, wow, that album was never supposed to be released. You know, I didn't know it was released and it, it certainly won't have their name on it anywhere. Some of these Labels were so brazen that they would even just put like Beatles songs on one of these, or Led Zeppelin, or James Brown, Sly and the Family Stone. Like the actual they, track, they would put real oh tracks by these artists on there. Uh, the Beatles one, I'll post a picture to. There's a link for Discogs, you can see it. It says the Beatles on it, but <laughs> I think the label on that one was a label called Guinness. So <laughs> it's a that was a subsidiary of Roulette. It was, and that was one of the mob ones. It's so funny. Why bother even doing that? Why not just put the same album out? These labels, the they're a lot of them are super collectible. A lot of them are incredibly cheap and easy to find. Even there's a Richard Pryor one, for example. That's they made a lot of them, and they're not very difficult to find. So you can get a few of the good ones for little money because they've been reissued with the real band name and. Uh, they're just not really worth much, or they're just not really very good, yeah. um, and people don't want to collect them. Nobody knows how many of these things were made. People, uh, the investors, the record companies, they will not talk about these things. It's very rare to find somebody who will talk about it. Even though the statute of limitations has probably run out, people just aren't talking. So it's hard to know what happened, but there are a lot of people who work on these, kind of collect these specific, obviously collect these specific types of records, and they could tell that there's a, there's a lot more out there, or there were if they weren't destroyed. Like, um, there's one guy who specifically goes after the the biggest of these tax scam labels is Tiger Lily. They are the most collectible, and they have some of the best ones. So anyway, this guy is a big collector of those and all of these, but he can see on the catalog numbers that they'll skip. Like, they'll be, you know, a 99 and then 104, and they'll just kind of go through. So we, they were using regular catalog wow. numbering, so there are a lot of things missing. And there are rumors that potentially there are warehouses in Florida or, or a warehouse or, that has, like... Thousands, tens of thousands of these things just sitting in there that nobody's ever seen. They've just been sitting there for, since 84. So in about, in 84, Congress passed a law that made this type of tax shelter illegal. So they stopped immediately and moved along to some other way of siphoning illegally money from people. <laughs> some of the other big labels, Tiger Lily and Guinness are the two big ones. Those are the ones that are probably the easiest to find, though they may also be the most expensive. Guinness is also uh, related to uh, another label called Dellwood, That's another tax scam label. Both of those are uh, subsidiaries of Roulette. And then some of the other ones are called, like, Tomorrow and Tribute, Illusion, <laughs> Rocking Horse, Crazy Cajun. And there's <laughs> one called Album World, and I thought this one was maybe the most interesting. Every single record they put out, they would have a different label name, so it was never Album World. It was always some other weird thing. But the matrix number on all of them starts with AW, so that's how people know that this is all Album World stuff.
1: It's almost a whole different type of music collecting. Yeah, I mean, like it's, I, it's so crazy. When you when you first told me about this, my first question is like, "What are they?" And my second question is, "How do we start <laughs> one?" <laughs> you know, it's it's just. So crazy.
0: So this information, the research I found for this, the first came from that Acid Archives book. They have an expert. This is a guy who was just talking about... His name is Aaron Malinsky. He seems to know a ton about this stuff. Paul Major is another person who... Again, every time private press or anything like this comes up, he's talked about... He is actually the person who found what is uh, now the most expensive tax scam record. The band was called Stonewall, and that record is sold for $5,000.
1: Can you hear it? Have you you listened to the Stonewall?
0: That one I have not tried to listen to at all yet.
1: I think Joe and I have just totally... (laughs) It's like all we talk about now and say, have you heard this? and found found this. Making mixes for each other and stuff like that, so... Yeah, so play us play some some clips So I'm going to go ahead and do the same thing Ryan did
0: I'm going to play a few clips, here you go
2: I'm very sorry if I caused you pain And I'll never do it again But you
0: The first one of those is by a guy named Bob Trimble. This is one of the more well-known of the private press guys. The song is called One Mile From Heaven. His albums were actually recently re- reissued by Secretly Canadian, which is a great great record label. The next song was by a band called Cold Sun, and the song is Here in the Year. The third one is by Father Yod, or Father Yod, I'm not actually sure. Father Yod in the Spirit of 76. There's no song title for this. <laughs> The album that I got this from, there's side A and side B. And it's basically just him ranting like some lunatic hippie, but it, with like this free jazz backing, and it's pretty great. <laughs> the the fourth one was is a band called Moo, and the song is Children of the Rainbow. This is one of my favorite songs of anything we've found. The last clip is by Perry Leopold. He is kind of the benchmark for this real people music. He is a guy out of Philadelphia who made made this album, and it is one of the best things ever, and anytime anybody finds a, a great private press record that's just some kind of lonely person in a room, sounds kind of funky, they compare it to this, and it Generally, just loses. There's nothing really as good as this. The song, the clip from the song, is called "Cold in Philadelphia." Any song off of this album would be great. Anything you can hear. And this one has been reissued, and I don't have it yet.
1: <laughs> I think with that Perry Leopold, the the story is he had 100 or 200 pressed, and he gave away almost all of them just on a street corner in Philadelphia one day. He just started handing them out to people. I think uh, it's time to play a few songs. <laughs> I'm going to start today, and for my first song, I'm going to play a lady named Kathy Heideman, and the name of the song is Sleep a Million Years. A million Years by Kathy Heideman. I have it on a reissue uh, that was done by Numero 2014. The original press that it was on, the original label was called Original Country Flavor Records. <laughs> it was DIA 1001 and it was a pressing from San Jose, California, originally in 76. There was just a handful pressed, and they were given out in shows. Uh, and they're just incredibly rare and sought after, like so much of these are. And essentially, basically, nobody knew about this uh, song or this record. And then there was an indie rock band Vetiver, uh, and that guy has a label, I believe, with Devandra, Devandra Bandhart, and on one of his lab- uh one of his albums. Uh, he had Vashti Bunyan sing the song. They covered it, and it kind of took off from there, became a little bit more well known and People started kind of wondering who is this mysterious Kathy Heideman. Really, not a ton is known about her. There's more none about known about Dia Joyce, who was the lady who actually wrote the entire album. She just had had this Kathy Heideman sing it, and basically they recorded it in San Jose. Uh, they went to a, a little studio with a competent backing band, and she had this uh, Kathy Heideman sing it. Um, the, one of the interesting things about this is that um, there's an article with a partner of Dia Joyce, and she says um, that in the studio that day, there was also Juice Newton. And she would go on to record "Angel of More," "Angel of the Morning," which became a pretty pretty big song, and have some other gold selling records. So, there was somebody at the studio the same day, uh, a, a female singer who would go on to a lot more fame, but she still had Kathy Heideman sing it. You know, basically make this demo, and then really no- nobody knows anything else about Kathy Heideman. She just kind of disappeared. So, uh, I don't know. It's kind of one of those again. It's one of those things, uh, we always post the cover, I love the cover, it's just a plain black and white cover, really cool, her voice is beautiful, it's a beautiful song, uh, kind of
0: sad, but uh, yeah, that's that's my first song. My first song is by a band called The Farm Band, off of their album Farm Band, it was recorded in 1972 on Mantra 777 Records, which is just, this is just another private press, it's recorded by a people living at a commune, basically. They made a bunch of records. There's a lot of information about them uh, without really talking much about the music, but this, this song is called Keep Your Head Up High, and I'll go ahead and play it now. that again was farm band with a song called keep your head up high from 1972 i have it as a reissue by a label called a karma and a karma is something that a friend of mine uh, my own personal Paul major whose name is larry lighter he kind of turned me on this label uh super super expensive i kind of hate him for this
1: all right i'm going to jump in with my second song this one um it's private press label. I'm probably cheating a little bit on um, how private press as far as with the band is, but it's it's an awesome song nonetheless. The song is Jim Sullivan UFO.
4: Shaking like a leaf on the desert heat. His daddy's got a bag that's so hard to beat. A bought me, a ticket got a front row seat. I'm checking out the show with a glassy eye. Looking at the sun dancing through the sky. Did he come by UFO? a UFO? lot of chicks are full in the book I read. Only men I know that got up from the a lot of people living by the works that have said I'm checking out the show With a glassy eye Looking at the sun dancing through the sky Did he come by a UFO? Think he'll ever come again a different way Maybe he is coming all a life away much goodness is a sin today I'm checking out the show With a glassy eye Looking at the sun Dancing through the sky And here to come a UFO If something happening that isn't too clear, just a little different than a previous years I think the happiness is getting very near. I'm checking out the show with a glass of ice. looking at the sun dancing through the sky. need to come by you.
1: By UFO Here he comes. Okay, that was UFO by Jim Sullivan. And if you have not heard that record yet, uh, you need to go find it. It's it's one of my favorite records. It's it's a really great record, kind of a weird story. So basically this guy, Jim Sullivan, he grew up and he was in in blues bands and stuff like that, and he um moved to California at some point uh, with his wife and his young son. His wife worked at Capitol Records, and he still just kind of kept writing songs, performing at clubs in the L.A. area, and he he got pretty well-established there, and uh, he apparently had some Hollywood friends. He hung out with Lee Majors and Lee Marvin and Harry Dean Stanton, which that sounds like the best party ever. (laughs) He He was an extra and easy writer. Uh, he performed on the Jose Feliciano's television show and he got some friends to basically loan him some money so he could record an album uh, but he didn't get just anybody to back him he got some of the best session musicians in la in the 70s uh, uh, 60s 60s I'm sorry the the originally it was on Mani records just a no no name label the album itself is fantastic it's called UFO uh, I have the lightning attic issue reissue from 2010, but what really makes the story kind of great and it fits perfect with the album is um, in March of 75, he was driving to Nashville to kind of try to see if he could restart his career and he checked into a hotel in Santa Rosa, New Mexico, and then really people don't really know what happened to him. They say that he might not have slept at the hotel. He left his key in the room, went and bought vodka. Uh, The next day, he was seen 26 miles away at a remote ranch, and then they found his car abandoned with money, his guitar, his clothes, unsold records, and he just disappeared. Nobody knows what happened. Uh, The leading um, uh, theory is that he was abducted by aliens, which fits really good with uh, the UFO album. They found a decomposing body that they thought was him, but it turns out it wasn't him. So nobody knows what happened to Jim
0: Sullivan, but
1: he left this record, and it's, it
0: really is one of my favorite records. And this is where we shift themes and hop onto the money wagon that is true crime <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> Let's find out what happened to Jim Sullivan.
1: Yeah, yeah, we can put on. Uh, I can put on my my best uh, my best NPR voice, and gosh, we we'd be so terrible at that true crime podcasting, I think. But yeah, anyways, be, uh, fantastic yeah. song.
0: The last song that we have today is mine, and I'm going to close things out with a song I talked about a lot earlier, and it's Kenneth Hickney, and the song is called "Can't Love That Woman."
5: When you sign your name. It's an autograph, when you speak your mind, it's a paragraph, when you tell what you see, it's a photograph and you're too sophisticated and you're not sentimental and you're too opinionated and you're not very gentle and i can't love a woman like that no i can't love a woman like that no i can't love a woman like like you girl when you sign your name it's an autograph.
0: Again, that's Kenneth Pigney with a song called Can't Love That Woman off of his album Attic Demonstration. That one was originally released in 1976. It was reissued again on a very small label in 85, and the copy I have is a 2012 reissue, also on a very small label. I don't even remember what the name of it is. I think it's one of the best of these real people records.
1: Even though this is already a supersized episode, we are going to continue with more private press uh, type stuff next episode Some different kind of themes and stuff like that So I hope you enjoyed this one Because there's a whole nother episode Coming at you and we're going to talk more about Some of our favorites and play some more clips And some of our favorite songs So, But before we let you go We have a little unfinished business As you remembered at the beginning of the show I played uh, five song clips And your job was to tell me the name Of the artist and the song And tell me the theme I'm going to go ahead and play them one more time for you and then let's see how Joe does. Track 1.
2: The telephone is ringing.
3: You got me on the
1: run. Track 2. You see
3: your mom this weekend. would you Be sure and tell her Satan, Satan, Satan. <laughs>
1: Track three
2: Slip inside the eye of your mind. Don't you know you might find a better place to play
1: Track four
2: one, two, three four five six seven eight nine sent track five all right
1: joe what you got
0: i feel like i'm being tricked so i a lot of these, I, I think I know, but I don't I don't yet have the theme, so I, I feel like something is going on where I'm gonna get a pie in the face or something. Yeah. So, <laughs> track one is Alice Cooper, and I think it's uh, under under my wheels or under your wheels? under my wheels under yeah. my wheels. Very yeah, good. Yeah. Track two is the Buttle Surfers, and I think it's Sweat Loaf. Yes, is that, it is. Right? It is. Okay. Track three is Oasis with Wonderwall.
1: It's not Wonderwall, it is Oasis It's Look Back in Anger
0: oh, they, okay, they all okay. kind of
1: sound the same I, I tried to pick one that I thought you might know I know i know you don't listen to Oasis
0: I honestly was thinking that it might not be Wonderwall But those songs sound so much They so do, similar to me. They're, they're very similar Anyways, you got the band, that's fine The next one's The Pogues But the song that I think, I thought the song was titled That Woman's Got Me Drinking But that's the line that you play in the clip So I don't think that's it What is? It's, is not, it whiskey, it's not The something?
1: Pogues it's Shane uh, McGowan
0: solo. That's and, my other option. Okay. And it is
1: "Woman's Got Me Drinking." I, I kind of gave that one okay. to you.
0: Is that from his Snake album? Or do you I think it was Snake. Yeah. The last song is Rolling Stones "Happy" yes. from Exile on Main Street. Okay.
1: Okay. And so right. I'm going to give everybody a clue about this theme because it's it's a strange theme. There is a person that fits with all these bands in some way. And the other clue I will give you is for the is ro- it Beck. Nope. For the for the Rolling Stone song, think about who's singing. Who sings "Unhappy"?
0: Still don't get how it would fit with the Bottle Surfers and Oasis.
1: Okay, there. Let me put it like this: There was a person, not necessarily famous for being a musician, who collaborated with all these bands.
0: Was this person a record producer? No. Nope. Um, He's an actor. Johnny Depp. Johnny
1: Depp. Yep. Hmm. So Johnny Depp, he did some sort of weird band with Alice Cooper. Of course, he did the band okay. P with Gibby Haynes of the Butthole Surfers. Ah. He played guitar with Oasis or something. I didn't spend a lot of time researching it, but he has some sort of link to Oasis. He actually played guitar on that Shane McGowan track, Woman's Got Me Drinking. So, oh. And I then no Rolling Stones, that, of course, is Keith Richards singing that. And I guess they hang out all the time because they do that Pirates of the Caribbean stuff. So, Very good. Yeah, that's a great. It was a that's
0: a great theme. Yeah, I it was that it was
1: a, a lot. It, it was one that we've never. It was a theme that I don't think any direction we've ever gone before. So I thought it'd be kind of interesting to see if you could get it. And uh, I appreciate the softballs
0: for the for the songs themselves of the theme. The would have I I
1: knew, I knew the theme was going to be the challenge on this. I didn't want to trip you up yeah. too much. I didn't want you to lose no, your self confidence.
0: I would have wept <laughs> again.
1: All right. Uh, I think that's about it. As always please go out, and I'd say go out and support your your uh, local musicians and record shops. You should do that, but you should also be checking in the bargain bins and finding weird records and sending those to Joe and me, or at least uh, finding the ones we ask you to and, and sending us the MP3 so we can at least hear them. But That's right. Uh, yeah, uh, support artists and, and musicians and record shops and all that, as we always say. And like I said, we're going to have more private press for you uh, next time. I hope you guys love it as much as we do. We could probably go on and on about this. It's so much yeah, fun. we've
0: discussed we've discussed having three episodes, but I think I think we're gonna try to wrap this up in two and just kind of go through a few more things that we think are vital to knowing more about what what's going on with these. There, but. There's
1: a lot more people who know a lot more about this than we do. However, hopefully, this is kind of like a good entry point to like kind of give you some ideas of some of the stuff you should try to find and listen to and some of the the resources and we're going to have even more resources and kind of different subsections next time but we just love it it's so much fun i hope hope you guys have fun with it too have a wonderful evening or morning or whenever you're listening to this and we'll see you next time